I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This will be a time. Uh, I We're going to be talking about the neuroscience of love. And <clears throat> I, I feel like I just got to get this off my chest. I am feeling something's going on in my brain right now. There's some neuroscience of love happening in my brain right now because I just looked at photos of, my, of the puppy that I'm going to receive in eight weeks. And I'm overflowing no, with that's love, it's cute, cute aggression for something. No, it's different, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm overflowing this. with love for something that I haven't even met. Um, and to get to the bottom of what the fuck is going on in my body, we are here talking to Brian Earp, Associate Director of the Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and Research Fellow in Practical Ethics at Oxford. Uh, Brian, you sound like a smart guy. Oh, I don't know. We'll we'll find out. We'll see if I can string something coherent together over the next uh, conversation. I, I, I'm curious, Jerry. You said you talked about um, love for a dog. I'm wondering if love for a pet is the same mm. in the brain um, as mm. love for human beings. Like, is that is that the same thing? Like, are we talking about that today, or is that something different? I mean, there's there's neurochemical overlap between those things. And one thing that's probably happening is a flood of oxytocin in your brain and dopamine and those kinds of things. And that happens through eye contact. There's some studies that have looked at the eye contact between humans and dogs and measured oxytocin levels. So there's some direct evidence ah, of that. But then, you know, something that might come out of this conversation is love is partly a biological phenomenon. So it's partly about what's going on in our brains, but it's also obviously partly a sociocultural phenomenon, which means mm. that, you know, we have concepts and boundaries and you know, cultural conversations about what we think should count as love. So some people would mm. want to draw a strict line between human to human love versus love for a puppy or love for one's country or something like that. Right. Other people feel like, you know, love for your dog. That's legit. That's, you know, mm. just as real as love for a fellow human. Do we have a balance? Do we have a balance for that? Or is it sort of like nature versus nurture? We really, you know, we know that they're both at play, but we really don't know how much of what is like, what, how, what are the, how are, how are the scales being, tipped one way or the other is it is it just a, a, open to interpretation yeah well and it changes through time i mean i i was watching this youtube video not too long ago that was a debate between christopher hitchens and somebody from the catholic league of something yeah and uh, hitchens makes a point he says you know homosexuality or same-sex relationships can be a form of love and this was like in 2002 or something not that long ago and the room i mean over overrepresented catholics in the room i assume you know just erupts in laughter like the very notion that that two mm -hmm. people of the same sex that whatever they feel between them could count mm -hmm. as love seemed right. absurd to them and so even in the last 20 years the predominant mm -hmm. view of which kinds of relationships qualify as mm -hmm. uh love um, has has changed a lot. Um, and that, you know, that can have an effect, you know, back down on neurochemistry. So 
there's this book by Carrie Jenkins, a philosopher called What Love Is, and she talks about this hypothetical example of uh, a lesbian couple in, you know, the late 1800s in, in England where their love isn't recognized as love by the by the culture. So she, you can look at what's going on in their brains, you know, and they're interacting with each other. They feel oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine. All this stuff is coursing through their systems. Their hormones are running wild. They feel nervous in each other's company. You know, all the sorts of physiological symptoms of love they're feeling. But, you know, they, they try to hold hands in public. Well, that's going to be a very different kind of a thing. And so now they're also experiencing like fear and maybe they're experiencing mm. shame. And maybe when they try to actually, you know, manifest their love in a sexual dimension, that there's all sorts of constraints that actually are, are going to kind of bleed back down and affect, you know, the kinds of hormones that are involved in sexual activity. Wow. Uh, and so th this cultural conceptual thing constrains biology and biology also kind of limits the range of things that we're even willing to refer to as love. So it's, it's a two way street. Hmm. Wow. Uh, can I ask you, Brian, can I ask you a personal question? Um, I'm curious about for you, is it really hard for you to say, um, I love you in relationships because like understanding the complexity of the <laughs> definition of love and then trying to express that, like, do you feel like it's hard is for this you to it? say <laughs> I'm in love with you or is it just something that's like, Oh, I feel like any other person feeling these emotions. Yeah. Has your studies tainted love for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so one th one thing that comes out of what you're saying is there's also the subjective experience of love. So it's, yeah. there's the biological yeah, right. dimension, there's the psychological subjective experience of love, and then there's a socio-historical context. And so there's this kind of biopsychosocial thing of love, and you have to think about it as operating in all these dimensions. So what a lot of people do is they feel something subjectively, and then they kind of have to ask themselves, does this count as love? And so often what we'll do is we'll look at poems and so pop songs and watch movies and talk to our friends, and we're doing this triangulation process where we're trying to explain what it feels like from the inside to you know be attracted to someone or have certain attitudes toward them or want to spend time with them and then we kind of measure our linguistic representation of what we experience with other people's linguistic representations of what they experience and to kind of see if they line up are we talking about the same thing and so you know there always is that question of does this count as love and then there's the translation that happens where somebody might say i love you because their particular conception of what love is lines up with their emotions. And then you might say, I love you too, but maybe you've got something totally different going on inside. Or maybe the cognitive element of it is different. You know, they right. think that love requires a certain kind of commitment, whereas you think love just requires a certain kind of strong feeling, for example. Mm. And so certainly it's not simple for me to say love because I definitely have to say, well, what do you mean? And, you know, what's yeah. at stake yeah. for you in that? And, you know, you know what, what's your, what do you think love is? Because... I think a lot of people think that they're having a conversation where they're both using the word in the same way. And a lot of heartache and heartbreak can happen when, when, when people think that, you know, yeah. what, what goes along with mm -hmm. love is a different set of right. constraints it makes or, sense. or whatever. It, it makes sense when you say that, like, as you were, as you were explaining and, and going through, like just how complicated on how many different on, in how many different dimensions love, love is operating. You know, when you think about how hard it is for relationships to, you know, last a really long time, divorce rates and, and, mm. uh, and think and relationships ending. And again, when you say that all that, all that stuff all, all of a sudden makes sense, makes more sense because you go, wow, this is, it's so complicated. And for two people to, for two people in, you know, like, let's say, you know, in like, a uh, in a monogamous relationship, for example, for those two people to have the exact same understanding on every different level that love on, on which love operates sounds like it would be a, a very tall order. 
Mm. Well, also, even just the idea that relationships are centered around love, especially long-term monogamous marriage-like relationships. Mm. There's, If you read the history of marriage, there's this wonderful book by Stephanie Kuntz, who's a historian of marriage. That's what she focuses on. And she makes the argument that you know, up until the Industrial Revolution, uh, where marriage was more about how property was transferred across family lines and so forth, mm. it was nice if you liked your spouse, but it, you didn't marry them because you loved them. And mm. so whether you felt passionate feelings for them or not was sort of totally irrelevant to right, whether you're yeah. going to be in a relationship. But you maybe you try to cultivate a friendliness or something like that, and it would be great mm. if you enjoyed the sex, but that that wasn't necessarily what the role of marriage was. <gasps> there was tolerance and a gendered asymmetry in the tolerance for men to have sexual relationships outside of the the primary bond and that was sort of quietly tolerated um, as, as a way of kind of trying to get all this stuff to add up in some sort of coherent way. But what held marriages together wasn't the strength of the love glue. It was rather the strength of the, you know, the, the necessity, the economic necessity or the strength of the family and community support whereby the exit options might've been really costly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the things that hold relationships together now we think of it as well, it's basically, you know, scales precisely with how much you love the person, which is a big mm. problem because then three years into the relationship, you don't feel as passionate or whatever. And you think, well, I, I must not love this person. And therefore our relationship right. should end. It right. sounds, it sounds kind of like these, uh, social, uh, societal, like cultural aspect of love has had this like, sort of like wavering influence on the actual biological component of love over the course of history, because, you know, you think back to those times in, in the 1800s where it was more of this, like, you know, agreement for economic purposes to have this, like, uh, arrangement in, in order to transfer land, as you, you said. But then, and people didn't necessarily love each other to form that partnership. But then, like, now, as as the sort of, like, media's influence on, with, like, through telling love stories and through things like, you know, Romeo and Juliet and, and these things, like we start to put more of an emphasis on the importance of like the actual, um, feeling of love. Like is, has it sort of wavered like that over time or, or is that just like, you know, over only the last 200 years? Well, there's, I mean, there's kind of famously the romantic period in literature, which is all about the extremity of the internal emotion and the authenticity of what you feel and and maybe going against social norms because all that matters fundamentally is what's true subjectively and, and you know all this wonderful poetry that comes out of that. And it, it kind of goes through, through phases um, mm. in terms of what's the predominant set of stories that a culture tells itself about love. And it also depends on where you are in the world, whether you're dealing with kind of like post-industrial revolution Western Europe versus whether you're talking about Ooh. India or China today. Right, yeah. um, and, and the norms are changing. And then you see people, one, I mean, one, one upshot of this is if you have people who have intercultural relationships, you know, people who are dating where, you know, one, one person comes from a family where marriages were arranged in just the last generation. And another person comes from a family where the parents don't feel like it's any of their business, what their children are doing. They have different scripts and, and, and notions and expectations, constraints that they're holding, maybe even only implicitly in the back of their heads. And so one in the same action might be interpreted quite differently to the two different people. And this, this is a, you know, can, can be a source of real, real strain unless you realize that how we think of love is shaped by the cultural scripts with which we're most familiar. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to kind of break down the actual uh, the sort of chemical process that goes on when we are forming new, uh, new relationships, forming attachment. <clears throat> you had kind of, you had kind of touched on it earlier when we were talking about the puppy, but like uh, with like oxytocin and things like that, what, what is, you know, when someone's getting into, say, a new relationship and 
And I think I think we're all kind of familiar with that feeling of like overwhelming sense of love, that like new relationship energy where you're just gaga over a person. What internally, biologically, what's happening within the body? Yeah, there's there's different psychobiological theories of love, and they they kind of carve up the space somewhat differently. But but an account that's shares features with a, with a lot of other accounts, so it's, it's plausible enough. Is is one that uh, Helen Fisher, who's a biological anthropologist, has 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 written about, and she proposes that there's kind of three underlying neurochemical subsystems that evolve for different complementary purposes. Over the, over the long history of our species. One she calls is just lust or libido. And this is a relatively un, undifferentiating drive that, that might draw our attention toward any number of potential sexual partners. It's, it's not very specific. Um, and then sh- she proposes that there's this different system with you know, some overlapping bits and bobs going on under the hood, but that, that, that both conceptually and in terms of purpose is different, which is attraction. And the idea is that attraction is supposed to be what narrows our attention down to a smaller number of potential partners, maybe one in particular, you know, with whom we feel what you're talking about, this kind of extreme obsessive, mm. thinking about them all the time, you know, your, your heart rate doubles when you see them and so forth. And then, you know, depending on how things unfold, there's this third system, which is, is, uh, might kick in, which is attachment and attachment is what we tend to associate with longer term relationships. And it's oriented around the idea of parenting, at least in the ancestral environment, the thought is, you know, human offspring are very vulnerable. And so they need at least biparental care plus, you know, support of the community and so forth in order to survive. So if the, if the parents are attached to each other, Rather than just you know having sex and moving on, uh, then they'll they'll more be more likely to care for the child and make sure that it, it survives until it can reproduce. And so we have these different systems that are kind of running under the hood. And mm. uh, you, you know, one way of thinking about it is that you go through these different phases. But of course, these these things overlap. You know, a person can be in love with one person and lusting after another person and have a deep attachment to another person. And in fact, that often creates problems in relationships right. when we have this expectation that all those things should be happening toward the same person at the same time and to no one else. Yeah. Um, so these these systems are partly dissociable, but you might think of them as going through a phase. You know, lust is sort of a first phase where, you know, anybody's uh, a potential mate. Attraction is where you have a smaller number of potential partners. And then, you know, uh, attachment is for longer term relationships. And, you know, each of these is kind of moderated by different ne- neurochemicals. Um, you know, so oxy- oxytocin and vasopressin and dopamine are associated with attachment primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, serotonin has been linked to attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, you can manipulate serotonin through like <laughs> antidepressant medication, SSRIs, and you can you can influence the extent to which people have this um, frenetic, obsessive feeling toward the other person. That seems right. to track levels of the serotonin transporter. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, libido is involves testosterone um, and, 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 and estrogen uh, in both men and women. Um, the, the, the way that testosterone works is complicated. It's not just like more testosterone equals more libido, but um, you know, roughly speaking, testosterone is one of the, the primary drugs that affects libido. Mm-hmm. Is, the, it, is it different for men and women? Like the, do, do men and women seem to experience those different um, elements of, of, love and an and, or attraction attachment with one another or is it is it different based on gender there's yeah so there's there's different evolutionary theories that suggest that if you have a sexually reproducing species where there's an asymmetry between the male and female partner in terms of what they have to contribute to have a viable offspring that it follows that there should be different mating strategies between these different members of the species so the basic idea is 
you know, males, in order to at least possibly have an offspring, have to contribute very little, namely some sperm. Uh, whereas a female of our species to, to at least possibly have an offspring has to devote at least nine months. And then in the ancestral environment, there's the weaning period and all this other stuff. So the cost is greater from, from the moment of conception, basically, for the female. And the thought is, this is meant to lead to a kind of female choosiness about who they want to allow to impregnate them. <laughs> because uh, once that happens, you're kind of off the mating market for, for, for a while. Mm. Whereas for males, the thought is that they should be relatively indiscriminate. And so, you know, sort of male promiscuity is, is justified or explained in, in evolutionary terms. So that's, that's, the, that's the evolutionary story. Now people will rightly critique it and say, it's a little bit one too simple. Here's just a, here's just a, a, a side note is, you know, the ideal mating strategy, if all you care about is passing on your genes and having offspring that are themselves healthy and robust and, and reproduce, for, for a female would be actually to mate with a high status male with really good genes, but then have a low status male think it's the father so that he'll stick around and take care and provide all this parental support. So you get both the good genes from the high status male who probably has lots of sexual partners, but the parental care from the low status male who has fewer sexual partners. Hmm. So there's reasons why mm -hmm. even on quote unquote evolutionary terms, you know, hmm. females should also pursue multiple partners. So, so, you know, the, you can parse the story different ways, but the other point is that of course we're embedded in cultures and we're, 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 we're essentially, we're, we're, we're social animals. That's our adaptive niche. And so yeah. we're not just being pulled by the puppet strings of evolution and often what happens is you have maybe very slight differences between men and women in terms of how they approach relationships that get caught up in the culture and then these mythologies unfold about fundamental male and female differences and then that affects our experiences of relationships you know if you're if you're socialized as a boy versus if you're socialized as a girl from a very early age your you know semi-conscious sense of what is how you should feel is going to be different. And especially if the culture is exaggerating the differences between boys and girls or men and women, then it, it, men and women may well have different approaches to mating, but what we wouldn't be able to say it's just down to some fundamental biological or evolutionary difference. There's always that, that uh, matter of culture to take into account. Precisely right. in the way, same way as like what you explain with love and how love yeah. in, different, in different times is different because like the biology is affected by the, so, the, the social aspect and vice versa. Mm -hmm. and, and they have these interacting effects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something you said there, uh, which which kind of caught my attention, I think is kind of interesting, the, the thought of how like drugs or, or substances that that we take um, for, you know, whether it's medicinal purposes, purposes or, or otherwise um, have an effect on like altering our relationships. Um, can, can we can we unpack that a little bit? I I. I never really thought about, I mean, I've, I've thought about how MDMA can play a pretty big role in, in terms of, um, altering relationships, uh, especially when it comes to like MDMA couples therapy or, or something like that. Um, even just through recreationally using MDMA myself, like it's something that I've noticed very intensely, like, and, and of course with MDMA and, and, you know, other, other psychedelics, there's, there's something going on in the body uh, that's affecting serotonin levels and, and affecting these these sort of um, uh, what are those hormones? Uh, 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 yeah, they're neuro neurochemicals. Neurochemicals. And, and yeah, also, I these think... things operate at work as hormones as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, but but uh, that 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 thought, that idea of like SSRIs kind of playing a playing a role in in altering altering relationships. What like what drugs or substances are out there that are already having an effect on the relationships that we are trying to foster every day? 
Yeah, so partly there's an epistemic problem here, which is that when we study the effects of drugs in contemporary Western medicine, we tend to focus on measuring the effects of individuals and their symptoms. So we don't systematically measure the interpersonal relational effects of medications in Western medicine, and that's a problem. So that means that we only have partial evidence for what I'm about to say. Mm. So uh, one thing for which we have pretty good evidence is that SSRIs, to use that example, and it's a good example because it's an extremely widely prescribed drug. Right, Many people right. think it's over overprescribed, uh, is that it, you know, it depends on the study, but some studies suggest between 10 and 20% of people who take it will have a, a seriously depressed libido. Their sex drive is diminished. Mm -hmm. And so one obvious implication for a sexual relationship is that, that you know, if you want to have, a, 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 you know, the sense of um, uncontrollable attraction to your partner or whatever, and then all of a sudden you just feel you're not that interested in sex, that could be detrimental in a certain way. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, imagine that you're in a partnership where you have wildly different kind of set points for your libido and one one partner wants sex, you know, three times a day and the other partner wants it once a month. If you imagine that the person who has a, a higher libido has to take antidepressant medication and then they just find that as a side effect of that, their libido quiets down. Mm -hmm. um, it's possible anyway that now the partners will find that actually they're more synced up in some way and it could possibly be a, a pro-relationship drug. So just a, a point to pull oh. out from that is that drugs have you know, different effects on different people, but even if they have the same effect on different people, depending on the relational context, it could either be positive for the relationship or negative for the relationship. So that's this really is why it's so hard to study. You know, yeah, you can't just right. say, here's right. the effect of drugs on relationships. You have to be like the dose times the person times their situation, times the relationship, times what's going on with the other person. And to map all that territory out and give like a, you know, a, a thorough accounting of how drugs affect relationships is really hard, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try because mm -hmm. these drugs are affecting our relationships, whether we measure those interpersonal effects or not. That's interesting because it could it That's could right. even be based yeah. on like the time in that person's life. Like what is their situation now yeah, versus yeah. what will their situation be a year from now? Maybe the medication works now, but will it will it work in the future? What <laughs> are really there studies happening right now like uh surrounding I I it, like in in particular like other studies going on right now um with the use of let's use MDMA as an example with the use of like MDMA um and and it's it's positive or negative effects on love um and and if so like what are we what are we learning from that yeah there there is some research but it's very preliminary um the the current body of evidence that we have mostly comes from the 1980s and earlier when mdma was used in a therapeutic context for psychotherapy but also for couples therapy right and you know, then it, is, it kind of escaped the therapeutic context and got used by teenagers dancing all night in warehouses and not drinking enough water and right, having right. medical problems. And so then it became this big cultural reaction and, and it got listed as an illegal substance. But at the time, the therapists, clinicians and um, counselors lobbied the DEA and said, what are you doing putting this as a schedule one substance? That's for substances that don't have any therapeutic value. But they're like, mm -hmm. regardless of how teenagers are using it, we're using it mm -hmm. for therapeutic reasons. And it's extremely effective. I mean, so what we have is a whole bunch of kind of case studies that have been gathered and collated from the use in the 1980s, which suggests that this drug can have profound effects for relationships. What's happening now is MDMA and some psychedelic drugs like psilocybin from magic mushrooms are being reintroduced into mainstream medicine uh, largely as as an adjunct to psychotherapy for otherwise incurable problems like people who have PTSD, they've tried everything else, mm. it's really severe, they're suicidal, and they think they've got nothing else to lose, so they might as well enroll in one of these trials. And what you're finding is that in terms of just treating these individual level problems, 
psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy are showing pretty massive treatment effects, way better than any other pharmacological approach that's available today. Mm. Um, but the other thing about PTSD is that that doesn't affect just you. Trying to be in a romantic partnership with somebody who is dealing with bouts of aggression out of nowhere or who is you know, constantly on edge because of things or lashing out or whatever can be a real nightmare for a relationship. And so what's, what's happening really in the last like year or two is that some of these same scientists who've been running these trials on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy are saying, well, why don't we bring the romantic partner into the lab? Mm. Why don't we have them both do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and actually talk about what's the implications of the PTSD or anything else for their relationship? And can we almost return in a way to that 1980s or pre-1980s model, but this, this time in a more systematic way where we're doing these things in the context of clinical trials rather than in this um, just, you know, therapists figuring it out as they go along. Right. Yeah. I, I, I saw an article uh, recently. It was like, I don't know, maybe a month ago about, um, about this exact thing about how MDMA um, can play a really significant role when it comes to uh, therapy between couples, especially with uh, one person in in the relationship who is struggling with, you know, PTSD is a great example. Um, but also how, you know, how MDMA can really be used um, in a really great way to deal with with things like heartbreak um, and 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 like exiting or leaving, uh, you know, a, a long term relationship. Um, as a as a as a smart person who, who, who spent a lot of time, uh, uh, in the realm of ethics. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of dying to know how, how ethics plays a role in using these types of substances when it comes to altering relationships and, and altering the ways that we feel about our partners or, or what have you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. One, one point to stress that you just raised is that MDMA shouldn't be thought of as just a pro bond enhancing thing that drives couples together, regardless of what's going on in the relationship. There are at least many anecdotal accounts of people saying, listen, I took MDMA with my partner. And what we realized was we shouldn't be together mm -hmm. uh, because we were finally able to be honest with ourselves or actually to talk about some traumatic stuff in our own relationship, but from a place of love rather than fear or defensiveness. And we were able to see the other person's perspective, not as somebody that I have to figure out, you know, uh, how am I going to make them fit into my life? But just what do they really need? And what do I really need? And can we talk about that stuff? So, so, so for, you know, for people to understand what goes on when you're under the influence of, of ecstasy, there is this sort of general sense of warmth and, uh, you know, kindness and wanting to be gentle with people. That's definitely a sort of direct effect of having serotonin flooding your brain. Mm. But also what seems to happen for a lot of people is that their hair trigger fear response to topics they don't want to get into, which is why it seems to be helpful for trauma. I mean, PTSD is the extreme example of this. Somebody says, tell me about your sexual assault or tell me about what happened in the war. And you're like, I'm not going to go there. And I would talk about anything but that. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, um, they're, they're, they're trying to deal, do this with PTSD. But, um, you know, our relationships can be difficult, even if they don't meet some clinical level of a diagnosis of PTSD. Trauma falls on a spectrum. And there's all sorts of grudges and just feedback loops and sensitivities that come up in our romantic relationships where we just aren't properly dealing with stuff. And so by the very same mechanism, by quieting that hair trigger fear response and allowing you in a, in a like literal safe space kind of a thing, in a really safe space with your partner psychologically to talk through some stuff, you may decide that you don't want to 
uh, uh, be together. Mm. I mean, the main ethical thing that comes up here is I think people say, well, if you're taking a drug, then whatever you feel is inauthentic. That's just kind of a, I don't know, a prejudice people have against drugs. They think right. drugs cause inauthentic states of mind. Um, you can certainly imagine a way in which drug use could be inauthentic. I mean, if you're constantly taking a drug in order to survive in your relationship and you're using the drug to avoid having to deal with whatever is the real thing in your relationship, then that seems like that'd be pretty inauthentic. On the other hand, if you're using a drug that's actually facilitating a more authentic mindset, if you're using a drug that's facilitating an ability to be honest and connected with your feelings and to see your partner for their own perspective, then the drug can be a, an aid to authenticity. And so mm. you just have to get straight about what is the actual effect of the drug and not lump all drugs into one category. Mm. I kind of think of it like uh, we had we talked we spoke to a doctor who facilitated um, ketamine treatments for people living with PTSD, mm -hmm. and she referred to it the ketamine as a social lubricant. And I mm. thought that that was. A really great way to think of it and another way i i kind of think of these experiences is it's sort of like um doing like engaging in like a shared meditation experience with a partner where the meditation is sort of a technique to achieve a more enlightened or heightened state of mind where you're able to connect with your true self and explore your true authentic emotions Th that might be you know sort of covered up by you know, years of either past trauma or just an inability to actually find the words to articulate, articulate the way that you feel in a situation because we're, you know, so often overloaded and flooded by, you know, the busyness of our minds focusing on our day-to-day -day shit that we're trying to deal with that it's hard to sometimes like just have a, a really deep and authentic conversation. And, you know, with my personal experience, I've, I've taken psilocybin recreationally before, but it, I hate using the word recreation recreational because I really feel like every time I've had a psilocybin um, experience, it's been more like a, like going on a, uh, like a yoga retreat with my friends sort of where we're, you know, accessing these deeper states of being and sharing those experiences with one another and coming out on the other side and going, Oh fuck. Like some of those things that I thought about during that experience have actually changed the way I think about life in a healthier way where now I can connect with my true authentic self and therefore I can actually be more who I am rather than, you know, using it as like some type of coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot has to do with how you, how you reflect on the experience and how you take the lessons from the experience and implement them in your life. So you could go on some yogic retreat with your partner and then just I don't know, get back in the car and return to your normal patterns of life. But if mm. you, if you reflect on what happened, and I mean, the same thing is true with a, with a drug mediated experience. It's like, and some people do use these drugs recreationally, like, like it's was fun at a party. And then I just went back to my life, but some mm. people use them for purposes like you're talking about, or maybe they didn't intend to. And then they have an effect like this, right, yeah. but they feel like it's almost like a spiritual enhancement or something. They feel like they're, they're, they're gaining yeah information. It's like an epistemic transformation for them mm. or a moral transformation for them. So I agree that the, the, the term, recreational is somewhat disparaging and it sort of seems like you're saying, well, it's just fun mm -hmm. and you know, different drugs can be used because they're fun, but especially with the psychedelic drugs. And for some people with MDMA as well, what psychedelic means is mind revealing. I mean, that's the, that's the literal meaning of psych psychedelic. And so um, if, if you think about the way in which these drugs have been used for 
personal enhancement, then you start to realize that we don't have enough categories in society for how we talk about drugs because we just have two. It's medicine or it's recreational. Those are the only two ways we know how to talk about drugs. We obviously need a third category here, which is drugs for enhancement, for self-improvement, for self-discovery, for relational enhancement or whatever. So, you know, my colleague and I, who wrote this book called Love Drugs, we try to advocate for this third category where we say, if all you have is medicine and recreational, then there's a problem here, which is that if you Mm. find that a drug can actually help people if used in the right way, improve their lives, then you have to start thinking about it as medicine and because that's the only available category. And then to do that, you have to start pathologizing them because the only way you can give somebody medicine is if they have a disease or a disorder. And so then, you know, whatever the, the, the pharmaceutical companies have to come up with like relationship commitment disorder or like whatever, you know, they have to come up with some categories (laughs) so that according to our logic, we can give us our, we can feel justified in making the drug available. But if we say, listen, the drug is just a drug. All drugs are just drugs, you know? SSRIs, like we call them antidepressant medication, but that's just because that's what we use them for. They are just selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's all they are. They do whatever they do, whether we measure those outcomes or not. Similarly, you know, we can use a drug for recreational purposes if we if we want, but we could also use, use the drug for, for other purposes. And so if, if we limit ourselves to these two categories, we literally can't describe certain experiences. Mm. And, and we're, we're lying to ourselves if we think that a drug is either only medicine or some trivial kind of fun thing at a party. Yeah. Doing mm-hmm. yourself a disservice. Do you, do you think, I mean, do you think that there's, do you think that we'll see that in the future or, or like, or do you think we're, we're you know, are we, are we kind of, are we kind of stuck socially in that sort of uh, that, that binary of, of medical or recreational? Yeah, when, when we were writing this book, which we started a long time ago, we started like 10 years ago and it took forever to finish it. But um, I think it felt a bit like a pipe dream that we thought, well, you know, we're just going to medicalize these drugs because that's the only plausible path forward in terms of, of making them available. But recently, when the state of Oregon passed this ordinance or law or something mm. suggesting that uh, I think it's psilocybin and maybe MDMA as well, will be available in licensed clinics for quote unquote personal use by, you know, age appropriate people who are at a licensed place where they have the guidance of some sort of professional who knows how to, how to administer the drug. What's interesting about this model is that um, you don't have to say what you're using the drug for. You just, if you meet the criteria and you show that you can be responsible in the use of the drug and you go to the clinic and I suppose if you can pay for it yourself, I mean, there's always the insurance question. Then the idea is then you just use the drug in a supervised safe setting and, Mm. and it could be for enhancement purposes. So if something like this Oregon model expands then I think we might get more comfortable as a culture thinking about drugs as having um, different uses other than just the two. That and we, I, I, yeah. I feel like we've seen that. I mean, like we've seen that here in Canada for sure when it comes to yeah. marijuana, you know, like that, like I feel, I feel, I don't know, guys like it feels like, like the first, like Dom, it feels, yeah. it feels like there was so much leading up to, and I mean, you, and you know, Colorado and, um, at least one other state, did Washington, it first. Washington state originally. Yeah. My, yeah, my did home it, state. Yeah. yeah. Did it first before Canada did it. And yeah. like, it felt like everything was sort of leading up to that. And then you had those two states do it. And then that sort of, I feel like was a catalyst for Canada to really consider uh, national legalization or federal legalization of marijuana. Yeah. And then now that has now like really started this, and like you remember before that, though, push. for like 10 years, it was medical marijuana. Yes. yes. That was the yeah. big innovation. It was like, it's, you know, we have yeah. to, this is medicine. And that's the only reason why we uptight people will make this, you know, allowed mm. under any conditions. And I think we're just losing that now. People don't, I mean, you have like conservative yeah. Republicans in the United States being like, it's a liberty issue. It's all about freedom. Yeah. And they're not even talking about medicine. My mom, so the discourse yeah. has totally changed. My mm. mom last 
last October, I'm sitting at my at my grandmother's birthday party of all places, and my mom starts telling me about how she, about her having her first mushroom experience at sixty at fifty nine. Whoa! And, I didn't. And, I didn't. And, I didn't and hear in front that. of my aunt and my Whoa. grandmother, which are like yeah. not the audience for <laughs> yeah, that, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and and I was going, "Whoa! This is such a shift. Like yeah. this is yeah. this is a this is a shift that's even affecting uh, that's a, like greatly affecting even people uh, in my mm. parents' generation who are just thinking about these things in in massively different ways. Whereas if I told my parents that I, you know, tried mushrooms when I was nineteen, they would have. Yeah, I've been happy. <laughs> my, that my that was my point though. Like about 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 the way that marijuana is viewed here in Canada now. Like it doesn't it doesn't seem like it it still has that. It doesn't seem like it has. It, it's within that binary of like medical or recreational. You know, it mm. it, it kind of just seems like it's just like is it, now. It, it just, <laughs> it just, it just yeah, now. it just yeah. exists. It just it's just a thing. And like like. I mean, sure. I'm sure you could argue that like, well, people either use it recreationally, like most people just use it recreationally, but like, even then it just, it just, it seems like it's now just a part of our well, culture. I was gonna it's just ask a part though, of our everyday usage for whatever fucking reason, whether that, that's to just like, you know, get fucking ripped and watch some <laughs> cartoons and eat a bunch of, eat a bunch of chips or, or that's to, you know, you're taking it for you know exactly anything right but Appetite, there's but spread, but with whatever. the the interesting thing about um marijuana is that like i f- i feel like and this is my perception is that it fit almost fits more into that binary of like recreational or medicinal in the sense that like these other drugs like psilocybin like ketamine like mdma like these have really profound like in the enhancement features of them like i i get cbd and things like that too but the enhancement part of like psilocybin for example seems like there is that like that third category seems almost more obvious to me is that right i think they all do because what like what brian was saying was that like drugs are at the end of the day all drugs are drugs and they do what they do yeah they just do different things yeah. Although, you know, how we think about drugs affects how we use drugs and how we use drugs yeah. affects what they do. So I, I suppose right. I shouldn't, you know, forget about that dimension. I think yeah. like, um, you know, the, the, the classic thing from the 60s of it's all about set and setting. That's definitely very true. And if mm-hmm. you're using a drug in a dance hall and with lots of music and you're not reflecting on your experience, it's very different to if you're at a some sort of retreat or you're in a cabin in the woods with your partner and you're, you know, have been preparing for this experience for two weeks and you have your journals ready to write about, you know, whatever happens. It's like, you're going to actually have a pretty different experience. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts Brian I wanted to ask you um, we we, we, we kind of got away from it earlier um, when we were talking about the biological um, the biological like chemical neurochemical things that are happening when you start to feel attraction um, uh, attraction attachment uh, love um, 
is there, like, I remember I, I, when I reflect on my experience of like how I felt about people and in relationships over the course of my life, that's a, been a very different process from, you know, being a child to being an adolescent to being a, a, an adult. And, and my capacity to distinguish how I feel has evolved very greatly over time. And, you know, for example, um, from like a, from like a, an attraction or sexual, um, standpoint as a, as an adolescent, it's like, I love everybody. You, you think you love everybody because it's like, I just, I just, I am horny and I, and I, and I want to have sex with everything. And, and, and so you feel attracted and you feel like you feel, you feel that. But then as you get older, like you said, you have, you, you, you can start to distinguish, like, is there, is there an age at which it is, at, at which is there, is there a, is there a, an idea of an age of where you can actually feel love and whether that's, I use the sexual, the sexual example. Oh, Siri thinks I want to ask that question to, to her. Um, yes, Taylor, there, I love you too. <laughs> thank you. Big daddy. Um, is there a, uh, is there an age where you can, where, where you can feel love, whether that's like love for a parent, love for a friend, love for mm -hmm. a partner? Like, is there a, is there a, is there a line? I feel like it's a recursive process where you're, you're sort of feedback in your experiences, your memories and what you've learned into the next thing. And maybe you, you get some new revelation about love, but I don't think that invalidates your past experiences and let's say, well, those weren't really love. Now I've experienced true love because I'm mm. 40 and I've mm. figured it all out. I wrote a paper with um, a colleague here at Yale called uh, The Ordinary Concept of True Love. And we have a case in it that we actually ask people about, which is what we call the puppy love case. And it's like, I don't know, I think the character's like in sixth grade or something like that. And they, they haven't, they experienced the vagaries of life and they everything's uncomplicated and they don't even really have sexual feelings for each other. And they just like love spending time together. And I feel like you could denigrate that and be like, well, they don't, okay, but they don't know anything. Like, that's not real love. But I, a lot of people were willing to say, well, there's something almost really pure about that. And for, mm -hmm. for them being in sixth grade, why, sh why should we discount that experience as being a legitimate or a valid form of love? And then, you know, maybe experience love differently as you grow and you, you mm -hmm. gain new lessons and gain new perspectives. But, you know, what we want to call love is often a, a sort of a, a value-laden choice. Like, you know, one thing is some people will say they'll be in a really abusive relationship and they'll say something like, well, you know, I mean, the cliche is he only hits me because he loves me kind of a thing. You know, he really wants me. And so he's very possessive. And some, you know, feminist authors would say we literally shouldn't call that love. Like we should make a moral campaign according to which we tell people don't use the word love that way because love has this very positive valence and people tend to think of love as this really great thing. And so if we, if we use that language, then we can blind ourselves to the abusiveness of the situation. And so some people say it isn't just a, a matter, you know, a neutral matter of how we use love. We actually have to ask ourselves, what's our goal here? What, how do we want to use this concept? What do we want this concept to represent? And what do we want to exclude from the purview of the concept? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's really uh, validating for me to hear the puppy love um, story because I have this like super fond memory of, of this girl that like I sort of referred to as my girlfriend when I was in like grade four to grade six. And we used to go to the playground every day and uh, spend time together. And like at that time I was like, I love, her. I love her. She's, like probably was my best friend at the time, but like, I was like, I love this person. And then I remember we had like gone away for summer between grade six and grade seven. And we go to this new school and like everybody's starting to partner up and be in relationships. And like her and I were talking one day and we were like, 
we, like, you know, we love each other. Like, should we be boyfriend and girlfriend? And we like made this like agreement. Okay, we're going to be boyfriend and girlfriend. And so we looked at each other and we were standing on the sidewalk and well, you like kind of went in to hug each other, but then like kind of stepped back and like just shook hands. <laughs> we're like, because like <laughs> hugging was like weird because there were like, there wasn't this like attraction where like, oh, I want to like hold this person and I love them like mm-hmm. this. It was like, we just like love spending time together. Like we're yeah. best friends and we love each other. And so mm-hmm. like, I always look back and then I'm like, I, oh man, I love, I love Jennifer Van Sickle. She's sweet, but it is but, fascinating uh, yeah. how you can look back through your life and look at all the different ways that you've loved. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done it in so many different ways and like you were saying, Brian, I think that, 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 that's, I would say that that's entirely true. Like you, you don't, there is, it's not, we shouldn't invalidate that because we, you know, because like now I've been in a relationship for a decade and, mm-hmm. and I'm in love with that person and very different love to the person that I dated in high school or the, mm-hmm. you know, like you like the, you know, the person that I was obsessed with in grade two and followed around and, you know, pushed and whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, like it's all, it's all love in different forms and we've done it in so many different ways. Mm. Mm. I, uh, I, I love this conversation. Uh, I like truly, this is, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, Brian, what are you, uh, what are you currently working on? What do you got coming up next? What's, what's exciting you in your world? Oh, well, okay. I'm, I'm working on a book that's about circumcision and other forms of cultural surgeries. Whoa, dude. And so, yeah, I'm just this trying to get so as controversial as possible. Yeah, yeah. This, this fucking, we were just talking about circumcision like yesterday. This oh, is really? so wild. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. podcast I, I, has been responsible whole, we, for yeah. like, this podcast has been responsible for like about, over think, over a dozen circum, yeah. like, like adult circumcisions yeah. that have saved Saved penises and sex lives. I mean, this is a, this is a total tangent. World, but because I of got medical cir- reasons. Yeah, I got, I got circumcised when I was sixteen, and mm-hmm. uh, and at, because I had I had phimosis, and but so it, it wasn't cultural or anything like that. But like we've had conversations about circumcision on the podcast so many times. I can't wait to read this book. We just yeah. had someone yeah. write in uh, just just <laughs> the, just yesterday to tell us about how um, he's from the Philippines. And yep. it's part of his culture where it's like a rite of he, passage. Yeah, when mm, he turned sixteen, yeah. he had to get circumcised, and and it was a really uh, a really traumatic experience. It's extremely traumatic. The rate of PTSD for Thule as the ritual is is like over sixty percent. I mean, you're wow. literally you're like you, you line up these kids on wow. school tables, and like you're they're just held down, and they're just coming into a sense of themselves of having sex, sexual organs. You know, they might be seven or eight or nine, they might be twelve or thirteen. It depends. And so the whole thing is that like they have to pull their pants down. They're yeah family might be there. There might be like a paramedical person who's actually doing the procedure. The pain control is kind of like iffy. And so it's this thing that's like, feels like an attack on the body and on the psyche. And you don't feel like you have an option because the peer pressure is so great. And also there's just a sense of inevitability. It's like, well, obviously this is what happens to boys in our culture. And so it's, it's, it's pretty extreme. And, but at the same time, there's no cultural conversation about it. Like I've had people write to me because I know I work on this issue and they're like, listen, I read your papers and I'm realizing this is a complicated thing, but we don't talk about it. Like it just is a thing that happens. Uh, and, and you kind of get that vibe in, in, in some places. Well, Brian, uh, when that book is done, my friend, we're going to come <laughs> knocking on your door. All right. Because yeah. uh, that's another conversation that we want to have. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. Brian, thank you so much for taking time out of your day yeah, today thanks. to sit down and chat with us. This has been really, really great. This is awesome. Yeah, likewise. Thanks.
that is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.